Good evening, everyone. It's good to see all of you again. So, uh, as as Johan already uh, said, uh, we're going to spend some time on the resurrection of Jesus this evening. And uh, for those of you here last week, we we reflected on the crucifixion of Jesus. So it's only proper, I think, that we move from there to his uh, resurrection. And I don't think I have to remind you that we are busy with a, a, a series where we are exploring the essential doctrines or the, uh, the essential truth claims of Christianity. So if you cannot remember that, just remember that this is part of a larger series that we are busy with. And the thing is that on any short list of the essentials of Christianity, you will find the resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> so sooner or later... Uh, we would have had to revisit this uh, belief of Christianity that Jesus rose again from the dead. And I'm saying revisit, uh, since here at Dialogue we have in the past spent a great deal of time on uh, Jesus' resurrection. And I mean, it's, it's understandable that we do that, uh, because the resurrection of Jesus was from the beginning uh, an enormously important part of the faith of Christians. And it wasn't just a very important part of it. In some sense, uh, the belief that Jesus rose from the dead is what ignited the whole early Christian movement. Uh, while the crucifixion of Jesus left the disciples offended and scattered in hiding, it was the resurrection that revived their faith in Jesus again. The Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 uses the phrase, if Christ has not been raised, to sketch three very dark implications for the confessing Christian. And I will quickly discuss, discuss each of them now, but the goal here is just to realize how, how important it is, how important this, this belief uh, of Christianity is. First, if Christ has not been raised, then all Christians are false witnesses basically liars. This means that all church ministers, I mean, Johan over there, he must go and find a new job and uh, probably join another club or, uh, or something of that kind or maybe another religion. I don't know, Johan. You... So that's the first, one of the implications. Second, if Christ has not been raised, then there is nothing substantial left within the Christian faith. It, it, I mean, it is on the historicity of the crucifixion and the empty tomb of Jesus that Christians through the centuries have hung their hearts, souls, and their minds. So in short, the whole foundation of Christianity will crumble if Christ has not been raised. And then thirdly, if Christ has not been raised, then we are still stuck in our sin and with no way out of it. And, and this, of course, assumes that without a resurrection, Jesus' crucifixion, was not enough to, enough to atone for our sins. His atoning death on the cross is not enough without his resurrection. And this is perhaps then why Paul ends that portion of Scripture by saying that if Christ has not been raised, Christians are to be the most pitied of all people. So in short, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, the implications of, of it would be horrible for the whole Christian faith. And now as we start, I want us also to see the, uh, the continuity with Jesus' crucifixion, which we looked at last week. Because we must remember that the resurrection of Jesus is in many ways 
a, con a continuation of his work as our mediator. Again, if you were here last week, we, we've spoken a lot about what it means when we say that Jesus is our mediator. The thing is that the resurrection is the resurrection of the one who was crucified. And in that sense, there is this progression in the work of Jesus <clears throat> that we see uh, as he, that, that he's, he's humiliated on the cross, but then there's, there's the exalt, exaltation that begins with his resurrection. So it is through his death and resurrection that sin is wiped out uh, and death is, is conquered. The Apostle Peter, for example, notes that we are given a, a living hope. That's a very important phrase. A living hope, not through the death of Jesus, but through his resurrection from the dead. And this then indicates that the resurrection is part of that. It's, it's a package deal. It's, part, it's a continuation. That's the point. And, and as a mediator, he goes between God and man. And, and remember, Job was longing for a mediator where someone would come between him and God and be able to touch both him and God. And that's what Jesus did. But the, the, the resurrection continues from the crucifixion. Now before going further, I, I, I want to unpack the agenda uh, for this evening. First, uh, I only have two basic points that I want to address. Now I want to give the resurrection some context uh, from the Old and the New Testament. And then second, I want to explore the spiritual significance of Jesus' resurrection for you and me here and now. What, what's the implications of it? If Jesus really rose from the dead, what, what follows from that? One of the, uh, the faculty from Oxford was once quoted saying the following with reference to Jesus' resurrection. I live with the puzzle of wondering how something so apparently crazy, referring to the resurrection, can be so captivating to millions of other members of my species. And the resurrection is indeed captivating. In, uh, in their discussion, Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, when they talked about the resurrection, Jordan Peterson said to be able to properly examine the resurrection, he needs more than 24 hours. He can't just, you can't just, because Sam Harris was trying to push him into a corner with the and he was, I think, also acknowledging that it's really a, it's a, it's an important thing, and it's a captivating idea, the resurrection of Jesus, to spend some time on it. And it's, and the reason is because it's just so inexhaustibly rich. Now, of course, the historicity of this event is very important, but, like I said, in the past we've spent a dialogue, we've spent a lot of time on the historicity of this event. I want to spend some time on the theological implications that's based on the historicity of the event. And I want to do this now by just going back and forth between the Old and the New Testaments just to observe some of the interplay between them. <clears throat> now in the Old Testament, you can find certain predictions of Jesus' resurrection. In Psalm 2 verse, verse 7, a verse that is very often misunderstood, uh, you read the words of the Father, God the Father, saying, The Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Now this verse is specifically applied to the resurrection in Acts 13, where Paul says, before he quotes this psalm, he says this, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. So he, 
he connects it with Psalm 2, verse 7. And then uh, also Psalm 16, which reads as follows, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, that's the, uh, the realm of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Uh, referring to the corruption of the body. After it, it basically dies. Uh, and then in Acts 2, the Apostle Peter is the one who explains that it, this psalm does not refer to David. It does not refer to King David because King David already died and his grave is still with them to that day. So he's not referring to King David, uh, Psalm 16. He consequently then states the following, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul will, was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we were all witnesses. So he connects Psalm 16 directly to the resurrection of Jesus, saying that Jesus' flesh did not see corruption. It was not stuck in Hades. It did not uh, go through a process of corruption. And the reason is basically that because he was raised back to life. And then again, we can also visit Job. He, he cried out, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at, at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. My Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I shall see God. He had some vague notion that he, even after he dies, he will still be in physical flesh somehow seeing God. <clears throat> and so I think his confession here is based on the very same logic that we see in the New Testament when the New Testament authors write about Jesus' uh, resurrection. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we see that Jesus predicted his own resurrection. Uh, in Matthew 20, he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. And the, the clearest example is in John, where Jesus, uh, then referring to the temple of the Jews in Jerusalem, he said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now the Jews answered Jesus saying that it took 46 years to build the temple and you're saying that you're just going to raise it up in three days. But of course they misunderstood because he was referring to the temple of his body. And the thing is that it is in this temple, the temple of his body, where the ultimate sacrifice would take place. With, and within three days then, after death and burial, he would rise again from the dead. So he was predicting his own bodily resurrection from the dead. And then also in John 11, he refers to himself as the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And this also, I think, gives us a very uh, beautiful significance to the resurrection of Jesus. Because what Jesus is in one sense saying is that he's inviting people to find the life in him. Since he is life itself, he gives life, and therefore in communion with him, eternal life can already be given from him, through him, and with him. Another important uh, 
implication of the resurrection of Jesus, I think, is that it confirmed his status as God's true eternal son. By his miracles and his resurrection, it was made plain and certain uh, to the world that Christ was the son of God. And this is gathered from Paul's words regarding Jesus in Romans 1 verse 3 to 4. And Paul starts this letter, he introduces himself as the apostle, and then he says, Christ Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this passage has long been used to also reflect again on the two natures of Jesus because he's, he's a descendant from David according to the flesh designating his uh, human nature. But then he is the one who, was, who has risen from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, referring to his divine nature. N.T. Wright, uh, a well-known theologian who has written many, <laughs> a very large book on the resurrection of Jesus, but he unpacks some of it as follows. He says, The resurrection of Jesus from the dead declares that Jesus really is God's Son, not only in the sense that he is the Messiah, not only in the sense that he is the world's true Lord, but also in the sense that he is the one in whom the living God, Israel's God, has become personally present in the world, has become one, one of the human creatures that were made from the beginning in the image of this same God. Now, apart from these predictions and the idea that the resurrection uh, just um, sort of, it sort of signaled the idea that Jesus is the true and eternal Son of God. But I think it can also be explained in a Trinitarian context. Now, you remember, I think, Anu spent one evening on the Trinity, and I thought it might be a good idea just to reflect on the resurrection from a Trinitarian perspective as well, because the whole triune God participates in the resurrection of Jesus. In the Bible, we see in many places, I'm not going to go through that, but in many places we can see that God the Father is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. But then it is also the case that God the Son, Jesus Christ, raised himself from the dead. It is in John 10 where we read that he is the one who laid down his life in order that he is the one who can take it back up again. He states that he has the power to take it again. So he lays down his life, but he's also the one who takes it up again. And then God the Holy Spirit he participates in the resurrection as well. We read in Romans 8, The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. This is how one theologian explains it. In sum, as we see the entire Holy Trinity active in Christ's incarnation and in His atoning death, so we also see the triune activity in His victorious resurrection. Hence, all that Christ was and continues to be for us as the one mediator between God and man is backed up to the fullest extent in the innermost life of the triune God. Thereby, the salvation of all who believe in Christ is as certain, lasting, and secure as God is God. And then one final remark I want to make is we need to also answer this question, whether Jesus was really the first one to rise from the dead. I mean, he's described as the firstborn from the dead in Revelations 1, and also in Colossians 1, Paul writes about him as the firstborn from the dead. Now, this does not mean that he's the first one to, 
to rise from the dead in a, in a sort of a chronological sense. He's not the first one. That, that would just be false. Because, I mean, we read from, about Lazarus, who, was, rose, who, was, uh, who rose back to life. Um, we read in the Gospels, when Jesus hangs from the cross, on the cross, we read that um, the graves of people opened up and they walked out of their graves. So there, there were many other people who rose from the dead before Jesus ever uh, rose from the dead. And so the question is, was he really the first one? Now, the, the way the, uh, the Apostle Paul made sense of this, or what he actually means when he's talking about Jesus as the, the firstborn from the dead, is that he's not first in a chronological sense. He's first in a hierarchical sense. Uh, the word for firstborn from the dead actually indicates a first one in rank. He's first in rank to have ever risen from the dead. And then the other unique thing about his resurrection is the idea that, again, referring to the Trinitarian context, that he rose himself from the dead. Uh, while all the other people who rose from the dead, they were rose by Jesus or by, by God's power. It wasn't the, out of their own uh, act of rising from the dead that they rose from the dead. That's another thing that makes his resurrection unique. And then another thing is that everyone who rose from the dead, they died again. Jesus rose from the dead and never died again. So his resurrection is still very unique, even if you look, if you compare it with, um, with the resurrections of other people as well. All right, but I want to move on now to, uh, to the second point, which is the spiritual significance of the resurrection for me and you here and now. Now, some have described the resurrected Jesus as the trailblazer who opens the way for all of his people. His resurrection is the great breakthrough of the powers of the kingdom of God. And so, again, it marks the beginning of his, of his exaltation as Lord and Savior, as, as the one who's victorious over death. Someone has described it like this. It is in that historical event where we hear the Father's Amen to the sons, it is finished. It's the Father's Amen to the sons, it is finished. Now, I believe the death and the resurrection of Jesus signals his cosmic victory, of, or, or signals the cosmic victory of goodness over evil. So when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he accomplished a great victory. Well, in fact, I would say the greatest victory that was ever accomplished. So if you do a deep study of some of the words that Jesus uttered on the cross, like it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You will discover that there was something very mysterious happening on the cross, and it, and, and it influenced the physical world. I mean, we read in Matthew that the curtain of the temple was torn in half. The earth shook to such an extent that, that rocks were split. And then again, other people rose from the dead as well. And all of these events ca caused the Roman God who were watching Jesus on the cross to say, this is truly the Son of God. I mean, this guy, this Roman soldier must have witnessed many crucifixions. But this one was unique. He's, the crucifixion of Jesus was unique and it didn't end there because within three days' time, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And I think you have to reach a point where you realize, look, 
whatever happened on the cross and whatever caused the tomb to be empty, it's very mysterious. We don't know exactly what was going on there. But what we do know is that Jesus conquered evil with goodness. And something that really stands out is the way Jesus accomplished this victory. He wasn't achieving it with violence. He wasn't uh, participating in some kind of warfare where he, where, where, I mean, when, he, when, he, when Pilate asked him about his kingdom, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, my followers would have picked up weapons to fight, right? It's different. And if you look at all the major states of chaos in world history, or, uh, order was always restored through violence. And then the next uh, moment of chaos was, there was order was again restored through a greater act of violence as the previous one. But divine order is established by surrounding and absorbing and the absorbing of hatred through love, by the undermining of aggression with forgiveness and peace. It is the divine mercy that reestablishes order. And I want to read another quote from N.T. Wright because I think he builds off of this that I just talked about, but then also takes us into the next, uh, I think the next facet that's also very relevant. He writes, The story of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, which we find in the New Testament, offers itself as Jesus himself had offered his public work and words, his body and blood, as the answer to this multiple problem. The arrival of God's kingdom precisely in the world of space, time, and matter. The world of injustice and tyranny, of empire and crucifixions. This world is where the kingdom of God must come on earth as it is in heaven. What view of creation, what view of justice would be served by the, by the offer merely of a new spirituality and a one-way ticket out of trouble, an escape from the real world? It is the real world that in the earliest stories of Jesus' resurrection was decisively and forever reclaimed by that event, an event which demanded to be understood not as a bizarre miracle, but as the beginning of the new creation. It is because of the resurrection of Jesus that we can expect a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, as we read in Revelation. Everything that God created, everything, he will redeem in one way or another. He is guiding everything towards an end where this world is ultimately made new. And everyone, everyone, I mean believers and unbelievers, will be given glorified, resurrected bodies. And this is why the resurrection is a way in which Jesus shows us the importance of the here and the now. The importance of this material, physical world, this moment. This is what the resurrection calls us to. He's calling us to the reality of this world in which we live. He's calling us to participate in reality in one way or another. And more than that, he's calling us to be part of a solution to all the problems we are facing in our lives in this country, here and now. This is C.S. Lewis. If you read history, you will find that the, Christian, that the Christians who did most for the present world were, the, were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased 
to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. This life, here and now, matters to God. And by raising Jesus from the dead, He not just showed that to us, but He also assured us of our own bodily resurrection one day. And therefore, He's calling us to participate in this life. We must be part of solutions like racism, part of solutions to poverty here in South Africa. If you look in the ancient, uh, in the early Christian history, there was a group who called themselves the Gnostics, or Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word uh, that means, that refers to knowledge. And they had this idea that a secret knowledge would save them from their bodily existence. They despised matter. They hated, they saw their own physical bodies as the jail of their soul. And all that they taught and all that they wanted to achieve was to escape the real world. They wanted to get rid of everything that's physical, anything that's material, this reality. They wanted to, to escape it. But the thing is that God, through the resurrection of Jesus, is showing us that He is interested in the real world. Christians must therefore not be uh, despisers of matter, but know that matter can be glorified so that divine glory permeates it at every single point. Both heaven and earth, spirit and matter, have been created by God that the body belongs to the essential being of a human being and, it is, and in that way is the image of God. And any problem that faces, that faces image bearers needs solutions here and now. So through the resurrection, we are part of something much bigger than ourselves. Another important factor is that the resurrection of Jesus has also assured uh, all Jesus' followers of their justification in God's sight. Okay, Paul links the resurrection of Jesus directly with our justification, and Peter explains that it is through the resurrection that we are regenerated. And then Paul even goes so far as to say that the same spiritual power that operated during the resurrection of Jesus is operating in every follower of Jesus. So the point is that through his resurrection, we have, give, we have been given assurance that we are grafted or planted into Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, if we talk about we're, we have, we're united with Jesus um, uh, or that we are justified in God's sight, it means, uh, you can think of an analogy this way, it means that, you know, if you read a book and you open, you open the book and you have a, well, what's a bookmark? A bookmark, sorry. <laughs> That's just the literal translation. <laughs> um, so if you have a, uh, a bookmark, you can't really see it, right, if you close the book. And in some sense, that's us. When God looks in, at me and you here and now, he doesn't, if, and if you're planted into Jesus Christ, he doesn't see us and all the bad stuff that we're doing. He's seeing Jesus and all the beautiful, beautiful stuff that he did. That is how God sees that. That's what it means when we're justified. And when we think of Jesus' resurrection, it means that that is sealed. It's done. It's over. Now, it is important to note that the bodily resurrection is not merely an escape from death, but it's the conquering over death. 
So death came into the world as a result of sin. However, Jesus abolished death and brought us back to life through his resurrection. And this is why he is described, as we, looked, as we mentioned earlier, as the firstborn from the dead. Through his resurrection, he showed us that we can look death itself in the white of its eye and know that the nihilism and the ugliness of death has no power over us. I mean, Paul said, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now, when it comes to the beauty of the resurrection, it also tells us that if Jesus Christ really rose from the death, if he is alive, if, as Job said, we can say that we know our Redeemer lives, then it also means that he doesn't live on in the same way as someone like William Shakespeare still lives, right? I mean, he still lives in some sense through his books and through all the works that he wrote. But if Jesus is still living, then it also means that in some way, in some mysterious sense, we can also walk with him. And that is a beautiful thing, and I'm going to explain what I mean. If you look at Luke 24, you read about two people who's walking to, the, to a mouse, and we read there, and because Jesus was risen from the dead, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. The idea of walking with God in the Bible is very significant because it, it, it um, points us to intimacy with God. It shows us that there's some relationship that we can have with God through the living Christ. So we can, instead of just uh, studying his words, looking at reading what he said, and that's very important that we read the words of Jesus, instead of just knowing of certain things that he did, we can actually know him and walk with him through this life. Now I'm going to just give three things that I think uh, what this might mean. So to walk with God means to be exposed and totally accountable. To walk with Him uh, is to have a moment-by-moment awareness of His awareness of you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And that is what it means to walk with Him. It's, it's a very deep sense of accountability that you sense when you think of God's exhaustible knowledge of you as an entire human person. He knows you through and through. It's scary in one sense because we don't like to be known. But the thing is, it creates intimacy. Without knowledge, without openness to be known, there's not going to be any intimacy. To walk with Jesus also means to be befriended and totally loved by Him. What do we do when we walk with each other as human beings, right? We talk, we discuss, we share things. I mean, we, the thing is that we have fellowship. We have fellowship with Jesus as well when we walk with Him. And then also, to walk with Jesus means to be growing and totally changed, slowly but surely. That's what sanctification is. It's that the slow process dur during our entire lives where slowly but surely we are formed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so, walking with Him means that we are going to be sanctified. But also it means that he is taking us somewhere. He's not walking with us in circles. 
Jesus is walking with us to a certain destination. And that destination has been referred to by many theologians as the beatific vision. Jesus, our Savior, is walking with us every step of the way towards the, the beatific vision. And that is when we will know the essence of God fully, face to face, be confronted with Him for who He really is. And that is where Jesus is taking us, to that meeting with God and where we will not just uh, be there, but have, have a very intimate knowledge and know Jesus from face to face. We have no idea what, it, what it's going to be like. It's just something we can actually be excited about, I think. All right, I'm going to conclude. In a whole other context, uh, the Greek philosopher Archimedes once said, Give me some place to stand and I will move the world. The followers of Jesus Christ were given some place to stand. They stood on an event anchored in reality. The early Christians were given that place to stand. It was a true event filled with hope. And as they stood on that hopeful truth, they moved the world. Every sermon ever preached by every Christian in the New Testament centers on the resurrection. The message that flashed across the ancient world, set hearts on fire, changed lives and turned the world upside down was not love your neighbor. The news, that, the news was that a man who claimed to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world has risen from the dead. So Christ's history, His history, is our destiny. The resurrection is something that is ours. It is something that we will experience there in the future when Christ returns and when we get to see His beautiful face for who He really is. Thank you. Dear God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that we can know you. We thank you that we can know you because you have sent us your Son, the one who's able to lay his hands both on us and on you. Lord, we pray that you would give us courage to follow him, to walk with him. We pray that you would help us to participate in this world, that his resurrection signified the importance of the here and the now. Lord, give us courage, therefore, to face the problems here in South Africa head-on as we follow Jesus. We thank you that we can know that he has given us a role. He has given us purpose. He has made us bigger. He has made us part of something that is bigger than we can ever really know we pray that that through our fellowship with him that we would be sanctified that we would be slowly but surely turned into the image of Jesus we pray for holiness Lord and as we go into this new week we also pray that you would uh, be with us in our work be with us at, at our homes and help us also to follow you there. And we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.